1: X-Z-B-N.net.
2: Take a step back in time and discover old Florida cuisine at Marsh Landing Restaurant in Felsmere. Enjoy delicacies such as frog legs, gator tail, catfish, and swamp cabbage, or enjoy the more traditional cuisine like hand cut Angus steaks, ribs, and seafood. Join us for breakfast with a southern flair featuring sweet potato pancakes, biscuits and gravy, and much more. Planning a party? Marsh Landing's private dining room can accommodate groups from 8 to 80 people. While you're visiting, enjoy the historic pictures, artifacts, and stories that line the walls. Marsh Landing is truly a unique experience. Marsh Landing Restaurant, 44 North Broadway in historic Fellsmere, Or visit marshlandingrestaurant.com. Marsh Landing. Old Florida Cuisine at its best. This is A Different Perspective with Kevin Randall. A retired U.S. Lieutenant Colonel, Kevin Randall has been studying UFOs for nearly 50 years. Kevin has investigated some of the most famous UFO cases in the world and has been consulted for dozens of documentaries about UFOs. Considered one of the leading experts into the Roswell UFO crash of 1947, Kevin has written more than 25 books about UFOs, including the recently published Roswell in the 21st century. Now, here is the host of A Different Perspective, Kevin Randall.
3: returned for our first show, I guess, in 2017. I had planned last week to do the retrospective show, but the only time I could get Noe Torres on the program happened to be that day. So I put that off until uh, this week. So I I guess what we're doing is not only a retrospective, but maybe a preview of things that we will do in the uh, upcoming months here on A Different Perspective. I wanted to talk a little bit today, uh, in the beginning at least, about the mission statement, what we do on this program. Because I think that may have been lost in translation somehow, people might not understand it. I've always felt that my job, not only as the host of this program, but as a writer as well, especially on UFOs and the paranormal, is to search out the truth, not my truth, not your truth, not anybody's truth, but the absolute truth. And that's why we sometimes get into hard questionings of the guests when they make some outrageous statements. And I'm trying to to learn exactly how they came to those conclusions and what evidence they have to back them up. So I am a, I'm searching for the truth. And sometimes it makes me come off, I guess, sounding like a debunker. Someone who doesn't believe in UFOs being extraterrestrial or doesn't believe in the paranormal. I'm looking for the evidence that leads us to that in that direction. I think of it as looking for multiple um, chains of evidence. And by that I mean, not only do we have witness testimony, maybe we have some instrumentality involved, such as radar, maybe we have photographs, maybe they're landing traces with uh, materials that can be analyzed in the laboratory, that sort of thing. So we bring all of that together, and we look for alternative explanations. I think that some of the great UFO sightings in the past and here I think of Charles Whitted, for example, and these were the two airline pilots back in 1948 who believed they'd seen a cigar-shaped craft with square windows whiz by the cockpit of their airplane. And it seemed inexplicable. I know back at the time of the sighting, the Air Force – uh, the chief consultant, who happened to be uh, Dr. Alan Hynek, had had suggested maybe it was a meteor, a bolide. And everybody says, well, the pilots are used to seeing meteors at night and that sort of thing. But bolides are very bright meteors. And looking at YouTube, I saw what was called a meteor compilation. And what that was, uh, was a whole bunch of meteor falls that had been recorded digitally. Uh, maybe some on videotape, but more so on the various digital Media That are available today, you know, security cameras, dashboard cams, people out there with their video recorders at football games and all that sort of thing. And what struck me is as you looked at the meteor as it fell, and it was a big enough meteor and it was bright enough, it would begin to break up. And sometimes you would get the impression, if you just caught a glimpse of it, of a lighted cockpit and windows along a fuselage because the human mind tends to group these things together. And so it was a perceived object behind it. I think Charles Witted, for example, got caught in that. And back in 1947, 1948, when this happened, we weren't that well aware of what was happening, what these things in the sky look like in today's environment. Of course, we have all these photographs and I actually put some on my blog, uh, stills from those meteor falls where you can see the idea of a lighted cockpit and square window. So I think some of the sightings like that uh, are explained. We had another case in in March, I believe, March of 1968, which was a satellite returning. And most people knew what it was, breaking up of the satellite as it reentered the atmosphere. But a number of people reported a cigar-shaped craft with square windows on it. And this seemed to reinforce the idea. That what Charles Witted had seen the same sort of thing, something breaking up in the atmosphere, uh, with square windows on it. So that that kind of uh, set me to thinking about those sorts of things. But the real point here is, I think Charles Witted has been explained as a meteor, as a bolide. I think some other sightings like that can be explained in that fashion. So I think of my job is to kind of root out solutions for. Uh, UFO sightings, if we can find some, and present cases that are, in today's environment, truly inexplicable, and see if we can't come to some consensus about what they may show, what they may be. And by doing so, I think we improve uh, the science of ufology. Uh, We move it into a more scientific arena, something that is more important, uh, more readily acceptable by the mainstream media, and by Uh, the scientific community and you know i've explored this on my blog at www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com so you can take a look at that so when we come back in just a few seconds here we'll be uh, moving on into our year in review so i will return with kind of a rear rear in review in just a moment Marsh Landing is truly a unique experience. Marsh Landing Restaurant, 44 North Broadway in historic downtown Felsmere. Or visit marshlandingrestaurant.com. Marsh Landing, old Florida cuisine at its best. And as, and as promised, we are now back. And I thought for this segment here, we'll take a look at uh, the year in review, what we did in the last uh, actually five or six months that we've been doing this program and what uh, sort of information has come out. I think one of the most important topics we discussed, and we did it over a number of programs, which was the Socorro UFO landing case in New Mexico in 1964, the Lonnie Zamora case. And we had uh, Ben Moss and Tony Angiola on the program talking about their investigation in the last two years of, of the Socorro case and what they had found. And during that conversation, they said a couple of things that I found somewhat provocative, somewhat interesting. And one was that uh, I had always. The we're going family style deal. Because I want a bite of your Big Mac. And I
0: need some of your quarter pound. I'll
1: try your filet fish.
0: There's a deal for every friend group at McDonald's. Order any two classics for just six bucks. Price of participation may vary. Single item at regular price cannot be combined with any other offer.
2: Geico asks, how would you love a chance to save some money on insurance? Of course you would. And when it comes to great rates on insurance, Geico can help
3: Zamora case: a single witness. Lonnie Zamora saw the object, saw it land, saw the creature, saw it take off. That's it. No other witnesses. But in the discussion with them, they said that there were at least three other witnesses to the to the case, and they had called into the police station. I asked them specifically, did they check the police logs? And they said no, they hadn't done so. So I was somewhat skeptical about this. But as I was looking at the case file, there was a fellow named uh, Richard T. Holder. He was a army captain who had command of what they called um, the stallion station, I believe, on the White Sands Proving Ground. And if you look at a map of New Mexico, you'll see the White Sands Missile Range now today uh, incorporates an awful lot of area in that section of New Mexico. So he lived in Socorro, New Mexico, because it was actually closer for him to live in Socorro to where his duty station was than for him to live in Alamogordo, which is, I guess, More information than you probably wanted. Anyhow, uh, Captain Holder had interviewed a number of people that very night in New Mexico. Uh, That very night, he had been called out by the FBI agent who asked not to be identified or not even mentioned that he was there. But in the course of his conversation with the uh, radio dispatchers in the Socorro Police Station, he learned that three people had called in saying they had seen this blue flame in the sky or this thing in the sky that eventually was what Lonnie Zamora saw land. So while the police didn't log these calls, didn't bother to get the names of the witnesses, which would be an incredible piece of uh, information for us to have, Holder did in his official report it's in the Project Blue Book Files, mentioned the fact that three witnesses had called in seeing this object in the sky or seeing the blue flame in the sky. So that kind of corroborates what uh, uh, Ben and Tony were ta- telling us about that. And I thought that was kind of an interesting thing. Doesn't mean it's an alien spacecraft. It just means there were other witnesses to this thing in the sky and it was corroborated through the documentation. So that was one thing that I learned uh, after after talking with them on the program. The other thing was they were talking about what the symbol Zamora saw was. And that became kind of a point of contention with a number of people. And I think most of us who look at the Socorro case think of the symbol as being sort of an inverted V with a a post or a a line down from the apex of the V and this uh, arc over that and a line across the bottom. I always think of it as the umbrella symbol. And uh, Tony and... um, and Ben were saying that it was actually an inverted V with three lines through it and when we had uh, Ray Stanford on the program he said the same thing that was the exact symbol although earlier and by earlier I mean like you know, uh, 50 years ago when he first investigated the case, he said that was the fake symbol and the umbrella symbol was the correct one. So I was looking into this and I'm not sure how much of this minutia is interesting to people, but what I found is in the project blue book files, and it's been published a number of times line is a more draw, do the symbol for holder, the FBI agent, whose name was Burns and, uh, for J. Allen Hynek. And he signed, one of those. And it's the umbrella symbol that he signed. But he also said, and, and, and Ben and Tony brought this up, and I think Ray brought this up as well, is that as he saw the object leaving and the symbol on the object, he wrote it, drew it on a scrap of paper so that uh, he would remember exactly what it looked like. And that was before Sergeant Chavez showed up and that sort of thing. And that piece of paper, that scrap, which is again signed by Zamora, is in the Project Blue Book files, and that is the umbrella symbol. To me, that suggests that the proper symbol is the one that we've all thought it was, not the inverted V with the three lines through it, but the one that we've seen in the magazines and the uh, books since that time. Now, if you go back and look at the original reports of some of this, you'll see that some of the newspapers reported the inverted V with the three lines through it. But Holder... I think it was, told Zamora not to reveal what the symbol was because their thinking was if somebody else came forward with a sighting and they said they'd seen the symbol and this fake symbol, this inverted V with the three lines to it had been reported in the paper and that's what they had seen, then they would be able to d- discriminate between the uh, real additional sightings and those that are kind of making up what they had seen. Uh, Holder told this to the Lorenzians, uh, that would be Coral and Jim Lorenzen from the APRO, Aerial Phenomena Research Organization. Uh, and that was published in their APRO bulletin. And in the May issue of the 19, 1964 issue, they have the inverted V, uh, not the inverted V with the three lines, but the, the umbrella symbol in their uh, APRO bulletin. So that, to me, kind of reinforces the idea that that's the proper symbol. And there's there's some contention, and I have discussed this since with uh, Ben And briefly with Ray Sanford, and they're talking about how it is, uh, the inverted V with the three lines is the proper symbol. I think they're wrong on that point, and uh, there's other documentation that uh, supports that. The other thing that I thought was interesting is we had an opportunity to talk to a guy who'd been in Project Blue Book. One of the officers assigned by the Air Force to investigate UFOs, that was uh, Carmen Murano. And we got to him through this uh, Socorro case, but he turned out to be a really nice fellow chatting about this. If you remember, this was the um, guy who had collected some of the materials as they were closing down Blue Book and they were going to be destroyed. Weren't classified documents, so he he thought they should be preserved and took them home with him. Uh, Several boxes of that stuff, and Rob Mercer, if you remember, happened to learn of that on Craig's list of all places and attract, um, Carmen Murano down, which I thought was an incredible piece of de- detective work to actually find the guy who had originally owned the boxes and, and, chat with him. And we had a chance to chat with him as well. And we learned something about the internal workings of project blue book, albeit at the very end of the project. And that may, uh, kind of, um, color our thinking on project blue book. But he said a couple of things that I found interesting. One of them was that virtually none of the cases were classified, that they or he had created a briefing book for reporters and others who came to Project Blue Book to look to see what was going on. I know of a couple of UFO researchers who had said that they had communicated with uh, Project Blue Book back at the, at the very end, at the end of the project, and had managed to visit. Project Blue Book, which I found ast- astonishing because it has always been the idea that the Blue Book files were classified. If you go back and you look at the documents as they appear now in, on the microfilms that are available to everyone uh, through, through either the internet or the National Archives, you'll find very few of them are classified. There's nothing to suggest they're classified. So Murano gathered this material that was going to be destroyed and, and took it home with him and it ended up in the hands of, of Rob Mercer. So we got to learn something about it. That was interesting that it wasn't classified and that he had prepared these documents for reporters when they came to talk about what was going on in the UFO investigation. The other thing about that that I found extraordinary was that not only did they have this briefing book that they would show to reporters, but uh, Murano had said that the majority of the sightings they got into their office at Project Blue Book were from the Ohio area, around Dayton Air Force Base, back in its heyday, Blue Book had uh, UFO officers on every, Uf, uh, on, on every Air Force base, but it was normally assigned as an extra duty. And anybody who's been in the service understands what that means. It's simply that you have your main function. In my case, for example, in Iraq, my main function was as an intelligence officer. I had the additional duty as the public affairs officer simply because of my background of writing books and magazine articles and newspapers. They thought this would be a good extra duty for me to have. Uh, normally in, in the military, these extra duties are assigned by uh, someone who is either not in the mi- the meeting, so he ends up with the assignment, or he or she has said something that makes them think they have some expertise, like, well, we've got to have somebody uh, ramrodding the painting of the buildings. And somebody says, yeah, you know, I uh, had my house painted once, and he gets the extra duty, he or she gets the extra duty. So the... Um, UFO officer was normally an extra duty, but their requirement was to investigate the UFOs and report these to uh, um, Project Blue Book at, at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. But according to uh, Carmen Murano, that didn't happen toward the end. And I went back and I looked at the index. Uh, when Project Blue Book was in its heyday, they created a master index that had, had all 12,000 uh, UFO sightings um, and it's I have it I have it broken down into uh, two loose leaf notebooks, so I can look these things up quickly. So I went back and looked at the last few uh, pages for the the last years of Project Blue Book, and he was right. The mostly sightings from o- the Ohio area, especially around Dayton, where Wright Patterson, is, very little coming in from elsewhere. And I found that kind of surprising because. I would have thought that we'd have still been gathering the UFO sightings from everywhere, but apparently there weren't, weren't, and the problem would have been the Condon Committee, that was the University of Colorado study that was commissioned by the Air Force, to investigate UFOs, or I should say allegedly investigate UFOs, because it was clear that they had a mandate from the Air Force to um, look at the phenomenon, determine that there was no uh, threat to national security that the Air Force had been doing a ju- good job, and they should close it down, which is of course exactly what they did but i was I was astonished to see that we had uh, very little of uh, sightings from from other locations and and part of that could be that they just stopped reporting the sightings that had been solved, which means simply if i'm i 'm out at uh, Warren Air Force Base in Cheyenne Wyoming, and there 's a UFO sighting. And I go out and investigate it, and I come up with a solution for it. I don't even bother to report it because it's been solved. It's some mundane object, and we don't need to worry about it. There are a few unidentified sightings at the end of Project Blue Book that came from outside the Ohio area, but but surprisingly, a great number of the sightings came from, from that area. So it kind of shows, I guess, the winding down of Blue Book in 1968, 1969, and the Condon Committee being the... Um, entity to which these reports had been made, and that that was uh, something that I found a little bit disturbing, but uh, thinking about it not all that surprising so that is all sort of an outgrowth of the um, Socorro sighting from nineteen sixty four when we got to these other people who were kind of discussing these whole things uh, with with us on on the program and you can you can listen to the programs. Up on YouTube, you can find the links through the X-Zone Radio Network, or you can take a look at my blog at www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com, and you can go back and you can search out these specific... The We're Going Family Style deal.
1: Because I want a bite of your Big Mac.
3: And
0: I need some of your Quarter d'Apon. I'll
1: try your filet fish
0: There's a deal for every friend group at McDonald's. Order any two classics for just 6 bucks. Price of participation may vary. Single item at regular price cannot be combined with any
3: other offer. Take, um, programs in which we discuss these specific things. And there's always additional information that I've gathered afterwards as I've kind of picked up the leads on this. So that is some of the things that we had done in the last few months on a different perspective. I had actually had some notes to go into a lot of other spaces, but we're running short here of time. And I wanted to do a preview of some of the things that that we'd like to do in the... We'll take a look at those things when we come back, and as I say, take a look at www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com for more information, and if you're interested in the Roswell case, and we'll talk a little bit about that um, coming up here shortly, but if you're interested in that, take a look at Roswell in the 21st century, which is my cold case investigation of, of the Roswell case, so we will return shortly with a preview of some of the things I hope to co- uh, hope to have coming in the next few months.
1: For more information on the X-Zone Broadcast Network, visit us at www.xzbn.net.
4: While science pursues fact, magic accesses the quantum level, bridging random facts to form truth. As long as science and magic remain separate and polarized... The truth cannot be known. I'm Gwelda Willeka. Join me on the Science of Magic radio program, dedicated to unification and evolution of consciousness. During each episode, I'll be speaking with experienced and respected scientists and mystics. A soul-balancing session can remove interference, heal trauma, and restore your hope. Contact Trixie for a life-changing long-distance session today, www.soulbalancing.world.
3: And as promised, I am back by myself, to do a reflection of the last uh, several months on the program and to look at the, what we may be doing in the future. And of course, we will continue on with UFOs in the, in the future. I have, uh, in fact, uh, just heard from Colonel Charles Halt, and uh, he of Bentwater's fame, uh, Rendlesham Forrest. And he's becoming on the program to talk about his experiences, what he saw and what he did at that time. Uh, we'll have Nick, Nick Redfern coming up. And uh, a lot of, you know, he's written many books on, on UFOs. And I think he's attempting to take the crown away from Brad Steiger and me. Uh, Brad and I often argue about who's written the most UFO books. I think it's him. He thinks it's me. But. You know, we've written. I've written oh, um, 28, 29 books on UFOs, and he's written a carload of books on UFOs. We've written a lot of other books as well, but you know, this is just the UFO stuff. And mentioning Brad Steiger sort of allows me to go to the uh, some of the things that we haven't done on the program that I would like to do. And one of the the things that interested me at one point, and I say at one point, I got a, a call from my agent. Uh, in the mid-1990s, and she wanted to know if I could do a book on near-death experiences. And I knew nothing, knew a little about it, very little about it. And I said, sure, because as a writer, somebody offers you an opportunity to write a book, and there's talk of money changing hands, you say, of course I can do that. In fact, that was how the Vietnam Ground Zero series came out, which was published by Harlequin, which is in Canada. I mentioned that for my good friend Rob McConnell. But um, she, had, she had called and said, can you write a book about Green Berets in Vietnam? And as a Vietnam veteran, I, I could at least write about that. And I said yes. And I'm thinking if she'd, written, if she'd called me and said, can you write a book about nurses in hospitals? I would have said yes because it's an opportunity to write books. Fortunately, I had a better background for the Green Berets in, in uh, Vietnam than nurses in hospitals. But I digress here. She had called and asked about a book on near-death experiences. And by near-death experiences, I don't ne- mean how the um, mainstream media sort of cooperated in the idea that uh, a bullet passes close by you. You're in a car wreck that should have killed you and that sort of thing. Near-death experiences actually refers to people who have died and come back. They've been um, in operating rooms and they died on the table and they've been resuscitated or things like that. And there's an any number of these stories going around that, that I found a little bit interesting. So I did a lot of research into this at the University of Iowa um, uh, library. I talked to a number of people who had experienced these near-death experiences. And, and what I got from the people that I talked to, I suppose that is the most important point, is the idea that they were just now very calm. They sincerely believed that they had glimpsed what would happen after they died had an opportunity to return to do something else and were quite sincere in their beliefs. And I found that myself, I found that somewhat comforting. Uh, You talk to the people of going toward the light, that sort of thing, and and they're met by relatives, they're met by friends, they're met by, I guess you could say angels, and it turns out it's not their turn, their time, so they uh, are returned, and they have memories of what happened there. I've also read the skeptical side of the argument. And I, I, as I said, I looked at the medical journals. I looked at the psychological journals in the various libraries at the University of Iowa. I looked at some of the popular literature and all of that sort of thing. So I'm well aware that the um, scientific consensus seems to be that this near-death experience is merely the brain shutting down as it loses oxygen and as the blood supply is cut off. Uh, to the brain and and uh, you know that that makes some sense to me a little bit, but there's always this element of of the scientific community demanding evidence, and all they really have is what the people have related to them about what happened after they had allegedly died and you know the one person talking about how he had now had a perspective from above his body and he's watching the surgeons try to resuscitate him after he died on the table and that sort of thing. So, I mean, it's a very uh, perplexing question and I I certainly don't have an answer, but I'd done a book called To Touch the Light, I think it was. And in that book, I talked about a number of people, people I had interviewed who had these near-death experiences and what they had experienced then. But I also talked a, a little bit about the idea of past life regressions. And this uh, is is more worrisome than the near-death experience simply because the people who are normally gathering these stories are not um, well-educated. Well, I shouldn't say well-educated. That's not, not a fair. Uh, well-versed in, in what they're doing. And then oftentimes they use hypnosis to gather these things. And I remember one of the um, uh, practitioners of this had a, a subject under hypnosis and trying to pull out a past life and the subject was saying, well, I just don't remember things. I don't remember anything. And the, and the uh, practitioners got frustrated and said, well, just then make it up. And I, this, this is not good. This suggests something about how these stories are gathered. But I talked to some others and I think they're doing, doing the best job they can. And there's some uh, interesting stories of past, past lives. And you see how the idea, um, has been been attacked by the church, for example. And I'm thinking here specifically of Bridie Murphy. She was a Colorado woman who in the 1950s, a guy was um, at a party. They were doing hypnosis. He would learned how to do hypnosis and they were playing the silly games with hypnosis, which really isn't a swell idea to do. And in the course of Bridie Murphy being regressed, she began to remember a life uh, in ireland in the mid uh, 19th century and so she was talking about things that she remembered and and that sort of thing and as they did some research they found the things she was saying matched up with historical records that they could access and in today's world there is a uh, internet the internet allows you to access so much information that it's very simple to research these things at your keyboard. You don't have to go to um, libraries all over the world to gather the information. You do not have to leave your house. You can do it through the Internet, depending on how good you are at using that. But she didn't have that opportunity. So some of the things that she said and some of the things she talked about were um, astonishingly accurate. Members of the clergy and a reporter, I think for the Denver Post, Uh, got a burr under the saddle against Bridie Murphy. So they were doing everything in their power to discredit the story. And I I don't think they did a good job of it. They were saying, well, she had a a housekeeper who had at one point um, had been from, from Ireland and she'd gathered some of this information from talking to her and that sort of thing. I just don't think that I don't think that's true. I don't think that's accurate. I think it was just done to kind of do away with um, the Bridie Murphy story. But this kind of leads me into a second point. And it's a book that I had done. Um, I, I, I wrote it a long time ago. And eventually it was published on Amazon as just an e-book. I called conversations and it dealt with a woman who thought she had been abducted and she had called for help. And this was back in the mid 1990s when I um, was more, more interested in the abduction phenomena and believed that uh, people were being abducted and that sort of thing. So I arranged with a fellow that I knew who had been trained in hypnosis, hypnotic regression techniques and that sort of thing. And, we uh, set up for her to – or we, we went to her house with the idea of hypnotically regressing her, which is something that we had done. So the uh, idea was to to learn a little bit about her abduction. The abductions were bothering her immensely. It was causing her problems with sleep. Uh, she couldn't sleep at night. She was frightened all the time and this sort of thing. And I, and I was thinking that, that the least we can do is maybe we can – Um, calm her down so that she won't be quite as disturbed about what was going on in the course of the investigation, as we're asking the questions and we're being very careful not to lead the witness. I mean, in, in, uh, hypnotic regression, it's very simple to lead the witness into believing something or telling you something that's just simply not true. So we were very careful not to do that and, and, and kind of asked, um, questions that we didn't think would be leading her. It came out that she had a past life memory that um, went back into the 19th century, and she was describing some of the events that took place around the Jack the Ripper and how those things were going on. Um, She wasn't claiming to be Jack the Ripper per se, but she was claiming kind of intimate knowledge of that. And as we quizzed her about other things, it seemed that she had this horrific um, history in past lives of being involved in some very heinous uh, crimes, you know, um, serial-type crimes. Now, what we're talking to is this woman who is probably the sweetest woman you'd ever want to meet, Uh, just kind and gentle and not a mean bone in her body. And she's telling us these horrific stories about what she had done in past lives. So uh, in the course of doing research, we discovered that some of the things she was saying were accurate We were able to find the stuff because we had access to the libraries. We had access to the information. I'm not sure how easy it would have been for her to access all this information, given the timing of these events. Um, We could do it more easily because we had a target we were looking for. And she's, I guess, out there kind of um, uh, 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 flailing away in the dark, so to speak. But, The interesting thing about the the book Conversations is we get to look at a history of serial killing, I guess, from this kind of a point of view that moves from um, some things done in the Middle Ages up to moving into the Black Dahlia. Killing in 1947, and I knew a lot about the Black Dahlia simply because it was 1947, and we're doing research into Roswell, and I'm seeing stories in the newspapers about the Black Dahlia. But what all of that suggested to me as I was doing the research was that this was another... The Black Dahlia was part of a number of serial crimes that the police didn't recognize as serial crimes simply because the victims were unknown, unrelated in some fashion, um, as, as we understand serial crime today, but in 1947, nobody understood what that was. So they weren't connecting these things, but I was seeing these things in the newspaper that seemed to be connected. And so we did a little bit of research into that. And all of this is outlaid, uh, outlaid, outlined in the book, um, conversations. So that kind of, um, intrigued me. So I put the whole thing together in a book. And and again, the problem with this is we're dealing with the testimony of a single witness, the the woman. She's under hypnotic regression. She's telling us the stories and we're verifying some of the facts, some of the facts, some of the things she told us we could not verify or seemed to be wrong, but it could have been a matter of perspective, if nothing else. So I was kind of an interesting book. And I was looking at that the other day. And I thought, this is kind of a fun read, even if you look at it, as a work of fiction, which of course it's not meant to be, but even if you looked at it as a work of f- extremely interesting, um, if if nothing else, so you know that that's something that I want to explore in the upcoming. Uh, Months a little more on the paranormal as opposed to just UFOs and look at some of this stuff as it's coming up and you can see some of this as I say at the blog www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com and you can um, find the books the book conversations on uh, Amazon if you're interested in taking a look at what that has to say when we come back I'm going to talk a little bit about Roswell and hopefully we'll be done with that topic for a long time so stick around
1: Wouldn't you love to know the secret to everything? Well, then, meet Dr. Kimberly McGeorge and her cutting edge breakthrough knowledge that combines science with possibility. Dr. Kimberly brings real life answers and healing to those open to alternative solutions. She teaches solution-based programs and classes that will change all areas of your life forever. Specializing in conscious creation, intuitive readings, and energy medicine, you can rapidly shift health, relationships, business, and money and abundance challenges quickly. Receive her best-selling book, Secret to Everything, at no cost by going to secrettoeverything.com forward slash xzone. That's right. Transformation can start now. Just go to secrettoeverything.com forward slash X zone and receive Dr. Kimberly's book for free.
0: Little children aren't the only ones afraid of the dark. Millions of soldiers return from war zones with PTSD, anger, frustration, fear, and loneliness, much of which surfaces during the darkness of the night. You have the chance to change the lives of these American heroes. Songs and Stories for Soldiers. Provides free MP3 players for these men and women. With a list of three million songs in 16 different styles, a hundred thousand audiobooks and
2: You're listening to the X-Zone Broadcast Network, www.xzbn.net.
3: And we are back with our retrospective and our preview of upcoming shows, I guess. I wanted to uh, talk a little bit about uh, one of the shows we'd done with Robert Schaefer, and it was from a skeptical point of view, Robert being a... Died in the wool skeptic, and he wanted to chat a little bit about my book, Roswell in the 21st Century. And suddenly it blew up on the Internet in the areas where I go, uh, which is mostly UFO stuff, uh, that I had recanted the Roswell case. In fact, Jerry Clark, uh, you remember him, he was on our first program, had done a review of the book, and the headline in Fortean Times was Roswell recanted. And I was thinking, well, I was a little bit overblown, but people began to talk about that and were just very disturbed about this whole idea that I had recanted Roswell. And I'm thinking, you know, I'm sitting here doing the Roswell case. I've been holding the door for literally decades on the case. I've been standing at the doorway trying to get to the, uh, the information about, about Roswell. And I'd done the book. Roswell in the 21st century, which was, the idea was to look at it as a cold case, and I think I probably mentioned this before, look at all the evidence, look at all the evidence, not just the parts that supported my point of view, or might have supported the skeptical point of view, but look at both sides of it and see if there's some common ground there. See if we can see things that that may have been left out of, of the... Uh, uh, all the words that have been written about the Roswell case. <clears throat> so that's what I—that's what I attempted to do in in the book. I wanted to make it a dispassionate uh, examination of the information, realizing that I came into this thing with a, the a bias that I had believed sincerely that Roswell was the crash of an alien spacecraft. I mean, the information took us there uh, from from Bill Brazel's discussion of what he'd seen. And what his father had said to Jesse Marcel, talking about what his father had done and, and other witnesses we'd talked to who had uh, seen this sort of thing. But when we did this original research back in the early 1990s, I didn't think people would be making this stuff up. I thought that in something like this, people would tell you what they sincerely remembered i thought we might get some embellishment people remembering things a little bit differently or maybe adding a little bit to what they what they thought but were sincere about what they were saying i did not expect to learn that people would make this stuff up and i think one of the best examples is a book called stolen valor and what it is is a book that looked at all these guys mostly guys, claiming Vietnam service and the horrific acts they had committed in Vietnam, which played into the the media narrative of the time. And what we find is a lot of these guys were lying about it. I mean lying about everything. I read a statistic the other day that there are 800,000 living American Vietnam veterans. I think that figure is too low. But at one point in the 1970s, there were like 2.5 million Vietnam veterans that we could document. The problem is in the 1990 census, I think it was, they had a question on the census form, are you a Vietnam veteran? Now remember, there are 2.5 million Vietnam veterans. 13 million people said yes. 11 million of those guys are lying about it. Why would you lie on a census form? The point of this is people will plug themselves into anything to get their 15 minutes of fame uh, or they're 10 minutes in the spotlight. And money means nothing to them about that. It is something that they do. And so as I'm looking at the Roswell witnesses, I'm discovering things that are quite disturbing. Some of it is is unintentional. There's a story about a guy named uh, Neely, I think it is, or uh, Neely, Newley, who claimed that in November of 1947, he'd seen the escape pod from the Roswell craft. And he <clears throat> gave this information to Don Schmidt and, and uh, Tom Carey, and they re- reported it in his book. And he says that he was at this B-29, and he had the proper credentials, and an MP came by and threw him out of the hangar or off the flight line. I'm thinking that, that Newley had a, a line badge, but the line badge didn't allow him to be in that particular hangar at that particular time, which is why he was removed. But he described this object in the uh, Bomb bay of a B twenty nine as as um, I think thirteen feet uh, long with a with a five foot bulb at one end of it kind of tapering down. What he dis- and, and the clue here was it was a silver plate B twenty nine. Silver plate B twenty nines had been modified to carry the atomic bombs. In nineteen forty seven, the size and shape were classified. Newly wasn't supposed to be in that place so he was thrown out properly but what he described was the MK3 atomic bomb and you can go now on the internet and type in MK3 atomic bomb and you'll see exactly what it looks like. His description matches that. So he's telling the truth but the uh, researchers didn't pick up the clue which was silver plate B-29. There's another guy named Trowbridge and in his his Um, obituary and I don't know why I couldn't come up with the word obituary right away but in his obituary he claimed well he didn't claim his family claimed that he had been the last living guy to handle the Roswell debris he said that he had been playing bridge at the Marcells house and I know the Marcells played bridge because uh, in the 1940s that's what you did And I know Jesse Marcel talked about um, bridge games at the house and that sort of thing. I think uh, Sheridan Cavett talked about that as well. But Trowbridge said he had been at the Marcel house playing bridge when Jesse Marcel showed up with the uh, debris, so he got to handle it. This is absolutely preposterous. I talked to Jesse Marcel Jr., of course. He remembered his father waking him up. There was not a bridge game in progress. I talked to Jesse Marcel's uh, widow, Vo Marcel, she said nothing about it. Jesse Marcel, when he was interviewed by other people before he passed away in 1986, never said a word about this stupid bridge game. Yet Trowbridge has plugged himself into the Roswell case. And now the great fear is in the future. People will go back and they'll be looking at this stuff. And they say, oh, this guy Trowbridge, what a wonderful witness. He, he handled the debris. I don't believe that story at all. So what I had done in the book was look at a lot of these stories, some of them are not in the book because frankly it was long enough as it was, Uh, and try to eliminate those that were, that had obvious problems or point out the obvious problems to it, Uh, bring forward information we didn't have uh, in the early 1990s when we began the work and look at it through the now more skeptical eyes, especially after I'd learned so much about what people would do to plug themselves into an event. And John Keel, who was a uh, writer of UFOs and the paranormal in the um, 60s and 70s, had suggested in 1990, 1991 that the Roswell case could be solved by a Japanese balloon bomb. Well, this was a preposterous idea and I'd actually researched this idea and before he'd come up with it, uh, I, you know, I had, realized that the balloon bombs didn't make any sense given all the information. It it, it did not work. The theory did, simply did not work. But Keel had had <laughs> I wanted to say floated this trial balloon uh, and we shot it down. But Keel said something that I that, that has come to pass. And he had written in nineteen ninety I suppose by two thousand there will be ten thousand people claiming to have some sort of intimate knowledge of the Roswell case. Well, the number isn't quite that big, but it's certainly expanded to people who have come forward and said, well, I was in Roswell, but you won't find my name in the yearbook because I was there on a classified assignment or <clears throat> I was there on TDY, so you can't find me in uh, any of the records and that sort of thing. I mean, I just say preposterous to this. But the point of the book was to look at the Roswell case and see if we could draw any conclusions. So I don't recant Anything really, what I do is modify my um, opinion, modify what where the research takes me, which is to suggest that a case that we had once thought was so robust with so many witnesses and leads to documentation, important leads to documentation, people who might have diaries, the family members kept in 1947 or documentation from the government files or photographs there was one point where we learned of a witness had a strange first name uh, they wouldn't the the person who told me about him wouldn't tell well, tell me the last name but he literally had pictures taken taken at the crash site but the name was strange enough i went to the county tax assessor and i said can you sort your computer by first name so yeah and they did there were three three things that came up two of them were businesses and the other one was a, an older guy's name who clearly could have been the right person. So we went and talked to him and he had absolutely no knowledge of this. But, but the point is, I mean, we were doing that sort of thing and I believed that we would come up with this sort of evidence. Unfortunately, looking at it, the information just is not as robust as we would like it to be. And we were left with, I am left with, I shouldn't say we, I am left with, looking at this whole thing that uh, we can't, prove it was extraterrestrial. We can tell you what it isn't to a great degree of certainty. Uh, We can say it was not a crash of a B-29 or an aircraft or an experimental aircraft. Cause the air force looked at that and said, no, it's not that we looked at a lot of different explanations, things off white sands, uh, uh, inadvertent dropping of an atomic bomb, that sort of thing. We just couldn't come up with a good explanation. I couldn't come up with a good explanation. So the point of all of this is, uh, the Roswell book, I think tells us, uh, something about the case, many things about the case that weren't, weren't published before. So, I'm looking at it as as if I have to hold the door on the Roswell case a little bit open. So that kind of gives you uh, an idea of where we're going in the future, where we've been in the past, and some of the things that uh, are of interest to me. Uh, Take a look at uh, www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com, and we will Um, You'll be able to see more information about this and take a look at the Roswell in the 21st century. And we will be back next week with an exciting guest, so you don't have to listen to me this long. So we will see you in 167 hours.